Desert Springs, it is good to see you and be with you again. Uh, there's lots going on around this church, so I hear these days, but I am so thankful to have been part of a church that would invest in me, my family, and many of our families uh, in the way that you have for several years, but then for the good of the gospel, I'll be willing to say goodbye. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan, um, one of the pastors at Christ Church. Uh, as Ron mentioned, three years and one week ago, you sent us out to plant Christ Church downtown. Our last Sunday here three years ago was one of the most emotionally difficult times that I have ever had. Uh, but one of the things that we were talking about leading up to that week was creating a culture of goodbye. That, create, that culture was already created here in this church, but this is what we want uh, this church and our church and any good gospel-minded church to have, a culture of goodbye. This is what the gospel does. It transforms, it shapes, it grows, and then it sends. And that will often mean tearful goodbyes for us, but for the glory of Christ. Nevertheless, that's what we do. Yet, that said, it's so good to still live here in Albuquerque, to be around, of seeing many of you around town at coffee shops and at grocery stores, of still being able to be around for things like VBS, which my children so much enjoyed. Thank you for that. And uh, just be, to be able to be here on a Sunday like this. So I have just personal so much love and affection for you all, and on behalf of your sister church and your partner in the gospel downtown, on behalf of Christ Church, we send you our warm greetings. Well, Marcy and I bought our first house a little over six years ago, and before we bought that house, I had little to no skills at all around the house. Uh, one question I keep asking, I've heard someone ask this uh, lately, and I keep asking people that I'm having small talk conversations, like if you were taken back to like, I don't know, like Wichita, Kansas 200 years ago, would you have any skills to make any money? And I, I, guess, I, I guess I could still pastor and preach, but other than like skills with my hands, I would have none. Uh, six years ago or so, and I still don't think I could make any money, but I could clean and vacuum the house, but like if a pipe underneath the sink started leaking, I guess just tighten it a little bit. I, I didn't really know what to do. You'd, that's something you'd have to call a friend or a plumber over to help you and show you what to do. But now I think I can handle pipes and leaks. Uh, I could set the thermostat on the heater and the, on the air conditioner or the swamp cooler, but like if the thermostat went out, well, you gotta YouTube that thing uh, like connecting wires and stuff. Now I don't think I'd have to YouTube that thing. I think I could just do it. Uh, I'm certainly no handyman, but YouTube and others' friends' advice and wisdom and counsel around the house have certainly increased the amount of things that I'm actually able to do around the house. And one area that I've actually learned to grow in love is just being in the backyard. I could always mow the lawn, I could weed eat and edge it nicely, but like growing things and keeping them alive, that, that was not a thing that I was able to do. I, I still don't know much, but Marcy and I are learning more and more each year, and fruit trees are now something that I can do a decent job of, of cultivating, keeping them alive, and actually producing some sort of a harvest in the fall of apples and peaches. And while I don't know if what you would call what we do in the backyard agriculture, uh, most folks in Jesus' day wouldn't have had the luxury to wait until their 30s to learn how to grow grow something. Uh, while undoubtedly there were professional farmers who would grow and sell to increasingly urban populations, most folks would have been much more familiar with, with at least the agricultural life and vocabulary than we are today, even though I'm sure most, many of you have undoubtedly some pretty killer gardens. 
Still though, even if you've never grown a cucumber in, the, in your backyard, or if you've never walked through one of the vineyards or wineries in the North Valley, uh, we city folk can still understand much of what Jesus is talking about here in John's Gospel of chapter 15. The image that Jesus is going to hang his thoughts on is that of a grapevine. So we'll do the same thing in thinking through this incredible passage from John 15 in two halves. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with me now, but we'll think through this passage in two halves, that of life on the vine and then love on the vine. So first of all, life on the vine. Beginning in chapter 14, the the chapter that precedes our chapter here today, Jesus begins to describe a future heavenly reality for his disciples with Jesus. And then what will be their present reality without Jesus? But that's okay, he describes to them that he's leaving. That's okay because he's going to send the helper. He's going to send the comforter, the strengthener, the advocate, the the Holy Spirit. And all of this that he is describing in chapter 14 was in the same upper room where he had earlier washed the disciples' feet and even where Judas had left them. And then at the end of chapter 14, we see this little throwaway statement. That of, rise, let us go up from here. So what follows in the next three chapters is as Jesus and his disciples are walking together. This is like a on-the-way, walking-along sermon that he's giving them. We'll see them as they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane at the beginning of chapter 18, but everything in between there is is an on-the-road sermon. And though absolutely speculative, it could be that they are walking towards the garden and they are walking alongside or next to the temple as he's saying what he is saying in chapter 15. And if so, above and around the about 100-foot gateway, entryway into the temple, uh, is an elaborately carved decorative vine. It was outlaid with gold, and ancient records say that wealthy Jews would have golden leaves and grapes made, which they could hang on this golden vine that went above and around the entryway of the outer courts of the temple. And so it could be that Jesus is, as he's leading his disciples past this golden vine, that he looks up and points and says in verse 1, I am the true vine. He certainly doesn't have to be here at the temple to have this make sense. Uh, The imagery of the vine and the vineyard is one of the most prominent symbols throughout the Old Testament. I count nine different times in five different books where the covenant people of God are referred to as a vine planted by God and then tended by God in order that it might yield good fruit. Most often, when the prophets use this imagery of Israel as as a vine, they are condemning Israel because Israel is not doing its job. It is not producing any good fruit, which is useful. Jesus himself follows in the tradition of the other gospel accounts with several parables of fruitless vineyards. He is following in the prophetic tradition of condemning Israel for being fruitless. But here in John 15 verse 1, whether they are walking by the temple or not, Jesus says something startlingly different than any prophet which came before him. He says, not you're doing a bad job, Israel, but he says, I am the true vine. I am the one that Israel always pointed towards. I am God's true and faithful son. Unlike Israel, I am the one who can, because of faithful obedience to God, be actually able to produce good fruit. If you've read John before, if you've ever paid attention to the kinds of things that Jesus is saying about himself and that John is painting for us, this shouldn't be surprising. In this book alone, we see Jesus say, among other things, that he's the fulfillment of the temple, the entire system of cleansing. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish feasts, including the Passover itself. He is even the fulfillment of different people, like Moses. All of this existed and pointed toward 
Jesus and what he's come to do. So here Jesus says, I am the people of God, the true people of God. I am the, the vine. I am the one in true covenant with God. And all of the promises made to ethnic Israel, including the preservation of the land, which so often throughout the Old Testament is talked about as a vineyard, the land being the vineyard, all of that gets absorbed and fulfilled in Jesus. All this isn't to say that Jesus is here to condemn the Jews or replace the Jews or something like that. He has instead come to create a new people of Jew and Gentile alike who are equally attached to himself the true vine. So he is the vine, and in verse 5, his new people who share in his life are the branches. Even if you've never walked around one of the wineries in the valley, my guess is you've at least seen a tree. We live in Albuquerque, there aren't a ton of them, but you've at least seen a tree. And if you see a tree, it is actually difficult to say where the trunk begins and ends and where the branch begins and ends. Like, can you point to a point on that elbow where the tree ends and the branch ends. It's very difficult. Where does it begin and end? You can't do it. Let me ask another question as we keep teasing that theme out. What is a Christian? If you were to define this or answer this question, what is or who is a Christian? Is a Christian an American? Someone who goes to the right church? Is it you because you go to the right kind of church? Is a Christian someone who says the right kinds of things on social media and links to the right kinds of links? Is a Christian someone who votes the right way for particular candidates over particular issues? Is a Christian even someone who believes the right propositional truths about God? Or, even better, is a Christian someone who believes the right kind of propositional truths and right theology about Jesus? But let me say something a little provocative here. It is not enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has lived a perfect life of obedient righteousness, who has died a substitutionary death on the cross, who absorbs the wrath of God that sins might be forgiven, and that it is even not enough to believe that he has ascended to heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father. And you might be thinking, oh, shoot. We let him get out of here at Desert Springs, and now he's become a heretic. Uh, Do you want to know why I know that that is not enough to make someone a Christian? Because even the demons believe everything that I just said. You want to know what makes someone a Christian. A Christian is someone who, apart from any spiritual life on their own, receives a second spiritual birth from God by desperate, clinging faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and King of everything in my life. That no matter where I go or what circumstances I encounter, he is now my life. And by this faith, this spiritually dead person gets the life of Jesus himself injected into their soul, that the very life of Jesus is now coursing through their veins so that it becomes like a tree in a branch, quite difficult for someone to observe where, the, where Jesus' life ends and yours begins, that you are so united to him that you become him. 
1691, this dude named Henry Skugel wrote this. He says, I cannot speak of religion without lamenting that of the many who claim it, few understand it. Some people locate religion in the intellect. Others see it as a model behavior. Still others find it an ecstatic experience. All these can look religious, but people do bad things in the name of such religion. True, true religion is deeper. It is Christ formed within us. It is the life of God in the soul of man. That is true Christianity. The life of God injected in, sharing in, and forming the soul of man. Christ formed within us. And that is anything but boring. Jesus says that he is the vine and we, his people, are the branches. And the father, verse 2, the father of the vine dresser, he tends the vine of his son to make it fruitful. Part of this is removing dead branches. If you've got a fruit tree, you know that you've got to do this. You've got to clear space. You've got to allow the tree to devote its energy to the things that are actually producing. And this should come as a warning should come as a warning to us. If there is no progress in godliness, if you are not growing in your love for God and in your hatred of sin, do you actually have the life of Christ within you? That is, are you a Christian? Now, it's probably not all that helpful, helpful for me to introspectively try to observe spiritual progress on a, like an hour by hour or even maybe even day to day or week by week, maybe even month by month basis. We are fickle, stupid sheep and we are often forgetting who we are and who the shepherd is. Praise the Lord though, it is not the faithfulness and love of the sheep that makes them sheep, but it is the faithfulness and love of the shepherd that keeps them with him. The shepherd's love and the faithfulness to his sheep. Because here's the deal, fruit can come and go over periods of time. Good fruit, bad fruit, they come and go. But it is probably a good idea once or twice, maybe three times a year, to think, to pray, am I growing here? Am I actually loving and trusting God in this area of my life more so or more than I was in August of last year? Am I hating this area of sin in my life uh, more so than I was in August five years ago? If the answer to that question is ever no, well, then this should cause us some thoughtful introspection. However, the response to a no answer like that can never be, well, then I'm just going to try harder. As if a dead and dying tree could ever produce fruit on its own, or if a leaf that is lying on the sidewalk, blowing along the sidewalk, can ever live on its own, can ever become green on its own. The response must always be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want to be finding joy. I want to be obeying you in this area of my life. I have nothing to give or offer you on my own. Only you can save. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Every minute, I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Lord, I need you. Give me your life. And he will do it. God the Father will continue to prune and shape and mold you into someone who is growing further into his life. And oftentimes, oftentimes that will hurt. Cutting and shearing hurts. 
I've been really helped by one author who says, it's no wonder we sometimes can't tell the difference between God making us really fruitful and nearly killing us. Take heart. He only prunes what's productive. If a tree is dead, you wouldn't waste time cutting off a dead branch here and a dead branch there. You just cut it down. The Lord will only prune what is actually still productive. But sometimes that hurts. And have you ever felt or experienced that? Of him taking out and taking out and taking out all of the extra stuff in our life that is distracting, that, tend, that we tend toward putting our trust in, so that in his great love for us, he might make us into people who might actually be able to sing, say, and pray out of the depths of our heart, all I have is Christ. Take heart. He only prunes what's productive. So he says in verse 4, abide in me and I will abide in you. We don't really use this word abide in English much more these days. We will use a word more like live or dwell or stay or remain in Jesus. But this is what he's saying. Remain, live, dwell. Make your, make your dwelling place here in me and I will make my dwelling place. I will hang out and live in you. You see, there's a mutual abiding there, a mutual dwelling, a mutual remaining there. There is absolutely nothing that you can do to even begin to create, maintain, flourish, and grow spiritual life within yourself. Only the vine, which you are attached to, can give you life. But there is a call here for us to keep ourselves in God's keeping love, to abide in him and he will abide in you. Go read the short one-chapter book of Jude if you want more on that, of keeping yourself in God's keeping love. But Jesus tells us to remain in him. I feel like I've been pounded in the gut over and over and over in the past year or so ever since I heard John Piper say, I'm astonished at people who say that they believe in God but then live as if happiness is found by giving him 2% of their attention. I think this is the kind of thing that Jesus is getting after here. Abide in him. Intentionally, with discipline, find ways to remember how good he is. Read the Bible. Read books about the Bible. Read the Bible with each other. Read books about the Bible with each other. Pray. Like, really pray. Pray by yourself. Pray with each other. Make Sunday church attendance a non-negotiable in your weekly schedule. You want to know why you're so discouraged by lack of fruit in your life, by lack of peace or joy or contentment? Likely, though certainly not always, but likely you're giving him about 2% of your attention. It's like you're an apple who is almost intentionally trying to pull yourself off of the tree and then are getting frustrated that the tree won't make you healthy. It's kind of like if you only go to the gym or lift weights, maybe once or twice a year, or you go to a CrossFit class for the first time in your life. You've seen lots of great results for for people that you know that have gone to CrossFit and then you walk in and you do the thing for like an hour and you're dead and you walk out and you look in front of the mirror and you're like, well, that didn't work. (laughs) Well, of course it didn't work. 
CrossFit only works is if you are committed to it, if you are disciplined in it over the long haul of your life. But how often do we treat church attendance or prayer or Bible reading like this? I'm going to open my Bible for the first time in six weeks. I don't really know what I'm going to do here, but I'll just find some chapter here and read a chapter. Well, that didn't work. I feel no peace here. I don't understand what I just read. Of course not. Just like lifting weights once a month is really, really hard, spiritual exercise and spiritual growth doesn't get easier, doesn't actually produce something without regularity, without discipline. Spiritual exercise, which brings growth and change, becomes easier and easier and then more life-giving with regularity. If you've ever worked out or trained for a marathon, like you're running ongoingly and then you start you miss a few days, your body needs it. It needs and wants that exercise. And the same is true with the spiritual disciplines. Start making these habits in your life and then you miss a day or two, whereas a year ago it would have been unheard of in your life. Now, man, I, I can't believe I, I feel like I've missed out on life with the Lord today. Abide in him and he will abide in you. And then verse 4, Jesus goes on to say, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I've already said this once, but I feel like I'm going to say it again. I need to say it again. My natural response after reading a text like this or even reading a text like Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit or something, is to read that, close the Bible, walk out of this building, and say, this is the week I'm going to try harder. This is the week that I'm going to conquer this area of sin in my life. I am going to, this week, today, at lunch, today, I'm going to have more peace, more joy, more self-control, more patience. Well, it's a common counseling metaphor, and I know of the deep and rich culture of biblical counseling here. So undoubtedly, the metaphor of nailing apples won't come as new to any of you. But if our backyard apple tree was producing no fruit, the, the branches were starting to get black even, and there was nothing growing. I could go to Smith's and I could buy 100 fresh gala apples and walk out with a ladder and a staple gun. And start stapling apples all over the tree so that people, uh, my neighbors across the wall, and that Marcy looking out through the kitchen window might say, That is a wonderful tree. Nathan is a wonderful horticulturalist. Everything will look good and healthy from a distance, but there is no life. It is a sham. That's a ridiculous scenario and one that none of us would actually try for ourselves. But how often do we walk out of here after a sermon like this or after a Bible reading time in the morning and just say, I'm going to make it look like I am kind and patient for everyone around. You might even have better intentions than that. Not just to look good, but that you actually want it. But how silly. I could convince myself I actually want some trees, some apples on this tree in my backyard, so I'm just going to take the shortcut. I'm going to cover all of the spiritual rot inside with something that looks good on the outside. 
trying to even convince myself that my life is actually healthy by stapling on some gentleness, by stapling on some self-control with my words. Today, by sheer willpower, I am going to experience peace. Doggone it. (laughs) I'm going to try real hard. Today, by sheer willpower, I'm not going to lose my temper with my spouse or my kids. I'm not going to do it. Today, by sheer willpower, I am not going to succumb to that drug, that bottle, or that porn on my phone. Today, I'm not going to do it. And then I did it again, just like always. You guys, as, as the branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine, unless it abides on the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in Christ, unless your life is attached to the vine of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit do not just come by sheer willpower as if you were like able to like push them out of the pores of your skin. Peace and gentleness and kindness. Like just by tensing really hard, by willpower. You don't, this is not, the way it works. The fruit of the Spirit are natural byproducts of the life of Christ, the Spirit of Christ pushing and coursing through your veins. Of a tree that has good root in Christ, do not mistake root from the fruit. The root is the thing that produces the fruit, and it is never the other way around. Life on the vine, though, life of growing in your love of Christ, growing in your utter dependence of him, your utter dependence on the work of the Spirit in your life, your minute-by-minute daily life of 2% of your attention, then over the course of the next year turning into 5% of your attention, and then 10%. And then 20 and 30%. That by the time you are at a, at least you younger folks who have many years and decades of sanctification ahead of you, that by the time that you are 70 or 80 or 90, you're darn near 100% of your spiritual attention and energy and love and affection are now on Christ. So that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all For the glory of God. Of your kingdom come in my heart. Your kingdom come in my desires, my worship, my affection. Your kingdom come in my heart as it is in heaven. Now the life of the vine is changing and transforming us. And the fruit then inevitably comes. It's just an afterthought of Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are, all, these are not something that we put our attention on. They are things that come because of our attention being on Christ. It is the life of God in the soul of man. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. So don't go out here looking for peace and gentleness and self-control and contentment. And then just hope to get Jesus thrown in. Do that and you'll get neither. 
Go out here looking for Jesus, and you'll get all of those things thrown in. And what's the result of all this? What happens when we abide in Christ and he abides in us? Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you've been reading the Gospel of John, this is not Jesus saying that he is a genie and you just ask for whatever you want and he'll just give you that new job promotion or the new house, the boyfriend that you've always wanted, or passing the midterm. This is not what Jesus is saying. If it really is becoming more and more that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is what Paul is going after in Galatians 2. If my prayers are becoming more and more less self-centered and more and more the kinds of things that Jesus would actually be praying, like in chapter 12, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. This is the kind of prayer that Jesus is praying. praying. If it is Jesus' life in our life, and it is Jesus' prayers becoming our prayers, then the kinds of Godward, kingdom-focused prayers that the Father loves to answer and respond to, these are actual evidences of the life of God in the soul of man. The Christian life isn't about doing the right kind of things. The Christian life is about being the right kind of person. This doesn't come from willpower. It comes from the life of God in you. But the Christian life is not necessarily about discerning God's will and then trying to figure out the right decision in whatever comes before you. Option A and option B that happens a million times each day. It is about the life of Christ coursing through you so that no matter what you do, No matter what decision comes in front of you, you are the kind of person acting in wisdom and acting in God-fearing holiness and in joy and contentment that you are growing in wisdom and other-centeredness, that you are being the kind of person that God has intended you to be. So Desert Springs Church, pray. If you don't pray regularly, start praying. If you are praying regularly, keep praying, individually, together. Grapes don't grow individually. They grow in clusters. They protect each other. With their, they're very weak by themselves, but together they can be quite strong. They share in the life of the vine together. They protect each other. Keep growing in your love and your care for each other. Keep growing in how you pray and what you pray for. If God were to answer everything that you had prayed for in the past month, how many people would now be Christians? How many of your brothers and sisters in this church would have grown in their love for Christ? These are the kinds of prayers that God will answer when Jesus is living in and through you. Why? Well, in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God the Father gets glory and honor by bringing life and producing fruit, which is the entire aim and end of creation in the first place, to bring glory to the Father. So all of this is life on the vine. This is what it looks like to have his life become our life, to have his life producing fruit in our life, to have the Father cutting and pruning even when it is painful, all to the glory of God the Father. But now, what's the result? What is the result of all of this? To have life on the vine, now secondly, is to know love on the vine. The entire aim of creation 
has been the glory of God. But the glory of God has always been grounded in the love of God. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so, I have, so have I loved you. The reason that there is a created universe in the first place, the reason that any of this exists and that you and I are even sitting here today is because of love. Not because God needed someone to love or because he needed someone else to love him. No, that's nonsense. But because of the love from eternity past that the distinct, unified persons of the triune God shared within and amongst themselves the love of the Trinity that was inwardly focused and exploded in all directions outwardly. Creation was a way that God might give something to experience his love. It is, it is that love that we are invited into and to understand as our model for how we are to love. As much as God the Father loved God the Son, perfect, pure, powerfully, holy, a ferocious love from eternity past, get this, all of that, how God the Father loves God the Son, this is how God loves you. If you are in Christ, this is how he loves you. How Jesus says he loves you with a perfect, pure, holy, powerful, ferocious love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is this is life-changing stuff. We should not blow by this. The love of God for you, his son and daughter. Amazing, amazing stuff. How he will keep you, grow you, prune you. And it is now to this love that Jesus turns his attention through verse 17 in basically a commentary on the entire vine metaphor that he has just given. Some of the fruits, it appears, that Jesus had in mind before, he'll now explain, are obedience, perseverance, love. These are the kinds of fruits that he's expecting to see. But we can't forget everything that we've been thinking about up until this point. If we just open up the Bible and read John 15, 10, completely out of context, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We might, if we just opened our Bible and just read that out of context, we might think that, uh, it is just out of dogged obedience that, we, uh, that God loves us. This is not true. It is the life of Christ within us, dwelling in his love, that causes us to keep his commandments. Our union with him, apart from him, we can do nothing. All of that is what brings about the fruits of obedience. And just as in chapter 14, Jesus, is pro Jesus promises peace, in chapter 15, he promises his full joy here in verse 11. Peace and joy are fruits of knowing, dwelling, and abiding in his love. But just as the love of God did something, the love of God went somewhere, the love of God found its target in his people. God's love for his people is not to find its end in us, but explode through us. To do something, to go somewhere, to find its target Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Let's come back to verse 13 in just a second. But Jesus says in verse 14 that perhaps the greatest fruit of his life within us, the clearest way for us to know if we are his disciples, is our love for one another. If we love as he has loved. And as a summary of all of these things in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. He's a broken record through this second half. Love as I have loved. Now here's an exercise I learned a while back. Love is a common theme, obviously, throughout much of the Bible. One of the most famous passages about love that you might have had read in your own wedding, completely out of context, uh, is the famous 1 Corinthians 13 passage. And let's replace the word love with my name or your name. See how it goes. Nathan is patient and kind. Nathan does not envy or boast. Nathan is not arrogant or rude. Nathan does not insist on his own way. Nathan is not irritable or resentful. Nathan does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Nathan bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, praise the Lord, there's some truth in some of that. Perhaps definitely more so than it was a year ago or 10 years ago. But what I just read about myself is not always true. I am boastful and proud. I do not believe all things truly about God. I do not uh, bear and endure all things. I insist on my own way, and I can often be resentful. But now let's do the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the point is that the only way to love like him is to receive love from him. To understand ourselves as weak, as helpless, as desperate, as unloving people, but yet he still loves us to death. And that changes everything. Because here's the rest of the story in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This isn't just some theoretical, theoretical musing of Jesus, some observation that he has made about the world and the way that humans and love works. Jesus is saying this about himself because in less than 24 hours, Jesus will experientially demonstrate his great love for his friends on the cross and the giving of his own life so that we can actually be considered his friends. No longer servants or slaves who would never dare to intimately know the Father. Certainly not make requests of the Father as his slaves or his servants. We just obey. But now to be considered a friend of God. But how might we become his friends? Even better, from chapter 1 of John's Gospel, to become his sons and daughters with all the accompanying rights of the inheritance of our older brother Jesus? How might we become his friends, his sons and daughters through the coming death and resurrection of Jesus? He went to the cross, the place of his death, so that it might become the place of your life. 
that he became like us so that we might become like him. It wasn't that we of the world chose him or first loved him, but that verse 16, he chose you and loved you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your lack of love might be forgiven through his great love, that his being separated from the life and love of God the Father for the first time in eternity might mean you being grafted into the life and love of the triune God. Or as Tim Keller says, Jesus was cut off so that we would only be cut back. Pruned by God instead of sheared off entirely and discarded, thrown into the fire forever. And then as Jesus as both our life but also our example, we might actually love one another to death. The death of our own comfort and desires for the good and life of others. The Christian life is a life of carrying your cross. The life of the Christian is following in the way of Christ, of putting our own desires and kingdoms to death. But the life of the Christian life, of following in Jesus, is also a life of deep and abiding joy, of deep and abiding love. So what would it look like to love others this week when it costs you, when it costs you long-term or it costs you in minute-by-minute moments of death, maybe foregoing a night of comfortable isolation and inviting others into your homes and around your dinner table, maybe foregoing an hour or two of social media today or even this week that you might meet with someone, that you might meet with someone maybe even from your own family over coffee or Bible or praying together, or that you might Help someone around the house with something that needs to be done. Kids, students, this also applies to you. How might it, what would it look like for us to love in a costly way as Jesus has loved us? Now, speaking of foregoing social media, even if you don't forego it, that's a place where we can love others well as well. Obviously, in what you actually post, but in loving people that you actually disagree with. The love of Christ, who died for his enemies, is now shaping, forming, and then exuding out of our hearts. Maybe not even into what we type, but in actually what we think and what we feel for others. Are you on the vine? Are you firmly and securely attached to his life? Or are you just floating along, blown along like a leaf on the sidewalk, wherever the world might take you? Is your life now his life? Is your death now swallowed up forever because of the death of Christ? Is your sin and fear of judgment now done away with forever because of Jesus' great love for you on the cross? If so, Love like he has loved you and keep hanging on tightly to the love of Christ. Abide in him and he will abide in you. But if not, friend, I cannot urge you with any more urgency than I can possibly muster this morning. Come to Christ. Come to him this morning. Have your sins forgiven. Receive his life into your life. Any member here at Desert Springs would love to explain what that would look like, what that has meant for their own life. 
about what it means and perhaps even to help you properly set expectations. That oftentimes walking into a CrossFit session the very first time is very, very hard. Becoming a new Christian doesn't mean that all your problems will go away and you'll never worry about anything ever again, but it will mean that you will have Christ. And even among the pain, um, amongst the painful pruning, he has spoken these things to you that his joy might be in you, that his peace might be in you, and that your joy may be full. Abide in him, and he will abide in you. Have the life of Christ become your life. Fix yourself on him, and he will fix you on him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, together, O oh, triune God, you have accomplished our redemption. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, for those of us who are on the vine, we pray that you would inject your life even further. We know you will. We trust you. We know that you are not stingy or withholding with your grace. So we pray that you would grow us and shape us, form your life within us. And Father, we pray for those, with, for, for those who are with us this morning who are not on the vine, who perhaps assume they are, but realize that they are just trusting in themselves on external fruit, but with no life inside. We pray that you would bring life this morning. Continue to draw and woo those who are looking for life in kinds of places apart from you into the very life of God. Do this that we might better love each other. Do this so that the world might know you. Do this that you might get much glory and honor. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.